Hello, and welcome back to Lots of Planets Have a North, a Northern Doctor Who podcast. I'm Kieran. I'm Bethan. I'm Jacob. And you join us for the second part of our uh, look at season 13. So, let's rip the plaster off. We can't put it off any longer. Let's, we've put it off for several weeks already. Uh, let's jump straight into the android invasion. You still got a TARDIS key, haven't you? I must have lost it. I haven't lost it. You never had it. Sarah came here, turned the key in the lock and cancelled the port control. The TARDIS continued on its set coordinates back to Earth. I don't understand. Yes, you do. This isn't Earth. This isn't real wood. It's some kind of artificial material like plastic. These are not real trees. And you're not the real Sarah. I'll start us off on this one. It's not very good. That's that's Shock my hot horror. take. I'm slamming it down early. It's a it's weird because in some ways, Android Invasion actually does have some some stuff going for it. It's not. It needn't have been at least a complete disaster. I mean, apart from anything else, you've got two of the most experienced people on the show working for working on it in the form of Terry Nation writing it and Barry Letts directing it. Terry Nation is kind of the problem in some ways, but we'll get to that. And it's got some some interesting stuff in it, especially the actual Earth stuff. I think in some ways it almost gestures towards doing the evil doubles thing better than Terror of the Zygons uh, did, because you get more of them running around. You get the just the image of Benton pointing a gun at the Doctor is quite potent. Mm-hmm. There's the I, I'm a big fan of the genuinely uncanny image of the the android sarah's face opening there's there's stuff going on as well this idea is like the i always think the um the thing with all the coins having the same date is quite clever it's a nice little kind of detective clue but and this massive but that's been coming up all along that's almost the problem in some ways the coin thing is a good example because when you start thinking about the coin thing you start to wonder Wait, why were they minting coins at all? Why did they have to build this replica of Earth? Why are they doing this when they're going to just kill people anyway? And the entire story falls apart. Because the baffling thing is, I rewatching this, I was I was surprised that it only gets to Earth itself in episode 4 cuz I remembered there being a lot of that stuff on Earth. The reason for that is that most of the vaguely interesting stuff from the plot is squashed into episode four. And so it kind of, you end up with an ungodly amount of dithering around in the other three episodes. Like I was saying earlier, I genuinely can't even recall what happens in most of episodes one, two and three. It's very kind of... A Doctor Who alien invasion by numbers. Mm. It really feels like Nation kind of phoning it in. And I don't think anything sums that up better than the Kral, who are the possibly the single most generic Doctor Who villain there's ever been. There's just nothing about them. There's no characteristic that you can point to and say, oh, that's an idea. They're just kind of evil aliens of the well not even of the week of the four weeks and as if all that wasn't bad enough there's 
a strange thing where, for one thing, I mean, as I'm kind of alluding to and calling the Kral generic, this is kind of just bits of better stories stuck together. Like, it kind of ends up as a kind of cross between the Ambassadors of Death and the Silurians towards the end. With maybe a bit of, maybe Terror of the Zygons, if you like, or some kind of double story anyway. But, the problem with blending all of those things together, or one of the problems anyway, um, and this comes back to something that's been kind of, something that we've touched on in actually most of our episodes so far, and that I know you're particularly interested in tracking, Jacob, which is the notion of conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. Because here we have an alien plot which involves replacing defense leaders and like various leaders around the world with androids, with replicas. And just to kind of top that off and make the contemporary relevance all the more distressing, there's a virus, a deadly <laughs> virus that they're going to release to just destroy humanity. So, yeah, in summary, it's not very good. It's terribly padded. Uh, It kind of just doesn't make a lot of sense most of the time. Most of the people involved seem to have largely given up. Barry Letts seems to be struggling along. He kind of, there's some interesting kind of moments of flair and some nice shots in there, like the, the face opening bit. But for the most part, it seems like everyone just kind of wanted to get this out as quickly as possible and i'm not totally sure i can blame them jacob what do you think (laughs) i think it's a work of genius no 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 i do not it's an unsung Um, gem (laughs) yeah i mean pretty much everything you've said i agree with it's terribly padded it doesn't really seem to go anywhere the plot doesn't make any sense I also, the word that I kept coming back to when I was thinking how to describe how I feel about this episode is frustrated. And the reason why is because, as you say, there is a lot, I think there is potential in it. Um, mm. You know, like there's there's stuff in it that I really like. Like some of the stuff in episode one where like they first get there and they don't know what's happening. You know, the kind of like uncanny, mm. unnerving stuff where, you know, villagers are kind of being brought in on, on, a, on the back of a truck and it's mm. all deserted at first. Like, the newly minted coins, yeah, they don't make any sense in terms of the plot, but in terms of just, like, creating a mood and stuff, like, I thought mm. you could have done something interesting with that, and it is effective. There's the whole thing where, like, there's the calendar with the same day on it over and over again. Mm. That's mm. another thing. So, like, there's images in there, I guess, and there's a tone that I think would work really well for the programme. Um, and you could make a good episode out of it, but it just doesn't work because it's Terry Nation just having to produce the scripts and kind of yeah, just like you say, re- recycling all these elements. I think there are interesting things to say about it, even though it's not a good episode. I think for one thing, which you've kind of alluded to already, like it is a Cold War story, you know when. They arrive there. The doctor's first suggestion is that the village is deserted as a result of some kind of nuclear fallout, mm. um, which straight away 
makes you think of the threat of nuclear war, which at the time obviously was kind of very predominant. And then there's this idea that the Kraals have created this this planned system filled with androids who they can program and control. And as you were saying, mm. this, this idea everyone has a double, they're taking over major positions. So it is, again, that almost like McCarthyite, like Cold War idea of you mm. can't trust anyone. Anyone could be an agent of the Soviet Union, etc. But I think the kind of the idea of again it doesn't make any sense in plot terms but the idea of building a society or a world from scratch i think does play into that idea again of like a planned economy you know the 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 kind of fear of socialism at the time and i guess what i find interesting it brings me to a wider point about the program's overall aesthetic in that in this period you know in the kind of mid mid 70s period particularly the gothic horror kind of episodes because often what you get with with gothic horror episodes is a mix of kind of traditional uh pastoral like a mythical image of what england is which is clearly not Mm. true Uh, and we've kind of talked about in the previous episode and before that and combined with that you get this aesthetic of what Mark Fisher calls popular modernism. So by popular modernism, he doesn't refer to like the work of T.S. Eliot or Pound or Wolf. He's talking really about almost like an aesthetic associated with the post-Second World War welfare state. So Owen Hadley talks about this as well, although he just uses the term modernism. You know, so like uh, Fisher normally talks about it in terms of music. Um, So I guess the most relevant to Doctor Who is the radiophonic workshop in other more architectural senses it's like 1960s tower blocks you know it's often often referred to somewhat inaccurately as brutalism and fisher kind of uses it to talk really about a culture that crosses the experimental and the mainstream and it suggests um some kind of future equality that was associated with kind of post-war like social democracy i guess and in particular, he talks about how a lot of people, you know, kind of uh, producing art and culture at the time were kind of beneficiaries of the of the welfare state. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what's kind of interesting about that, the mixture between these two aesthetics in Doctor Who, between the kind of traditional pastoral mythical sense of Englishness versus uh, a kind of like a more... I guess, like, regimented, like, design, like, you see it in the design of, like, spaceships quite a lot, like, you know, kind of matte colours, greys, whites, very, like, boxy, square designs, is you you do get this sense of popular modernism as a kind of threat, as something that's alien and is threatening to this kind of mythical uh, sense of Englishness. Um, And I think, really, that is symptomatic of a wider kind of conservative fear of social democracy the way in which many conservatives would see it in popular modernism as trying to simply completely erase the traces of past traditions and start a society afresh Hmm. and in that sense i guess it's they see popular modernism as kind of the opposite of a of like a burkean conservatism about tradition Hmm. and by burkean i mean burke's 
account of the French Revolution, which is complete nonsense, um, that the French Revolution descended into tyranny because it didn't want to preserve traditions, it didn't want a sense of continuity, it simply wanted to destroy the old order completely. And frankly, the old order was completely unjust, so to me that makes sense, but anyway. And in the Android Invasion, the reason why I come to it with this particular episode is it's interesting in that it has those two aesthetics. It has the very stereotypical English village image mm. alongside the the kind of the popular modernism of the uh, the space research station, which is very much you know kind of what people refer to as like brutalist aesthetic of like you know white grey concrete very regimented um and you see it in other episodes i mean like the stones of blood um mm, mm. you can argue the pyramids of mars the the contrast with like you know the going to the pyramids of mars versus the kind of the priory image of the fendal even like you know mm. anything where there's sort of this uh, sort of scientific equipment of the time combined with uh, a kind of gothic aesthetic and i guess Something I'm really kind of getting at here that interests me is whether the programme in this period, whether there is a, a, a strain of conservatism in that aesthetic, which I think there probably is, um, mm. although I think it's used in different ways from time to time. And I think mm. more recently, people who we, or like authors and works that we call hauntological, have, have kind of used these aesthetics to try and unsettle images of the post-war period because of course w the reality is that popular modernism wasn't about apart from in the sense of a few radicals thought of it in this way it wasn't really about tearing down the system at all it wasn't about creating something new it was really about management and about management of the system and its continuation so yeah that's my attempt to try and talk about this episode or talk around this episode <laughs> but yeah 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 actually um something i didn't really mention because it wasn't super relevant but it struck me as you were as you were talking was um some of the stuff in the village and the kind of the strangeness and the uncanniness of it and ultimately the kind of confluence of different styles uh, reminded me quite a bit of uh, the World's End mm. film, which is a obviously a far more contemporary take on on that, and uh, I think has quite a different take for that matter, especially given uh, kind of how it ends and stuff. But that's very by the by. Bethan. Oh yeah, I'm here. I don't have much to add, unfortunately. Uh, I don't. I I thought it was bad, obviously. I I similar to what to what you've both been saying I felt like there was elements in it that could have worked and so that kind of makes it all the more frustrating when they don't because there's all these bits like the bit in the pub where everything goes from being bustling to completely like still mm. is is quite well done it's an interesting idea there's a lot of sort of interesting ideas or nice little uncanny notes that never really amount to anything I was never hugely invested in the mystery of how can Earth be so deserted? Is this Earth? Which is kind of what those first three episodes are about, really. Mm. But I just... 
it didn't really feel like a well thought out persistent mystery element and so then when it turns out that it's not earth i was just kind of thinking oh okay in rather than it being kind of interesting there's also a cliffhanger that goes absolutely nowhere at one point which i think might be the end of the first or second episode where sarah gets grabbed by someone from inside the pod and then she just doesn't mention the pod until they find it again in the alien facility Mm. um so there's a lot of stuff that's kind of set up and then dropped and then is picked back up again as if it had always been there it's slightly bizarre that it got made in such a haphazard kind Mm. of way but um, i have a bit of a theory about that ah well i'll do you want to take take that up now uh i might as well because it's not a, a particularly involved theory but essentially the story before this was written by robert holmes the story after it largely also written by robert holmes so I, I assume he was just kind of too busy working on the other scripts around mm-hmm. it um, and like reworking Terrence Dix's script in the case of Brain of Morbius and kind of thought, oh, well, Terry Nation knows what he's doing, contrary to a lot of available evidence. Uh, I'll just let him kind of get on with it. And this happened. I mean, that would make sense because I think unsupervised would probably be... <laughs> one of my Mm. key ways to describe it on a script level even Mm. though there is some it's it's put together on screen fairly well although the cliff bit at the beginning looks terrible Mm. um it's one of the classic sarah jane rolling down a gentle slope yeah yeah (laughs) moments but i think you can tell in the sort of genericness of the of the villain you can tell i mean i'd be interested to know what if any description of the stall stall what are they called uh crawl the crawl or possibly crawls i'm not sure i've written both down uh anyway i've got chidaki and stigrom which are their names so i'm just gonna call them that and i'd be interested to know what if any description of the aliens went out to the Mm. costume department because it kind of just seems like a bunch of elements thrown together like oh we've got to get something that looks like an alien this will do <laughs> rather than a sort of coherent vision of what the creature is supposed to be and mm. how that kind of relates to their actions and stuff because they're in these sort of samurai style outfits but um there's not really any i mean in a way i'm kind of thankful that there's not really any overt like japanese references mm. in there elsewhere in the script although one of them has a weird accent that they're doing which i question but um yeah it just kind of seems like haphazard on a script level and therefore it was never really going to come together in the Mm. in the filming which is a shame uh because there's some interesting ideas but no resolution i was unsatisfied i wrote in my notes is this bad funny or bad bad? And I think it was bad bad in the end. Hmm. So yeah, that's me on the android invasion. <laughs> I suppose one other interesting idea that we haven't... Well, we've glanced by, but we haven't really talked about is the the idea that... Again, this is sort of, I suppose, probably uh, unintentionally 
in dialogue with Terror of the Zygons in that, again, there's a hint of a unit story here. Mm. But uh, there's also a hint of a, a story pitting the Doctor against unit, specifically, albeit android unit. So there's a sense in which, like, I think if you were really determined to, like, write a 10,000-word article about this story um, and popular modernism was only getting you so far, you could try and read it as a um, a riposte to the Pertwee era on some level in that mm. sense. But, I mean, part of the problem is that there's already two or three stories that are doing that in itself. Because, like, Robot is sort of doing that and Terror of the Zygons is sort of doing that. So even that kind of falls very flat and is not terribly original when you kind of break it down. Mm. It's such a bizarre story for what is technically the final unit story, you could say. I mean, I know mm. that was kind of meant to be Terror of the Zygons. But, like, yeah, it, it just seems odd. It's like everyone is not themselves and... Mm. We kind of barely, we don't really interact with them that much as well, and yet it is the last appearance, really. And obviously the Brigadier isn't around, though I think he was meant to be, but then couldn't couldn't be in I it or something. I think so. Um, Which, to be fair, is like obviously not the story's fault and probably would have yeah. improved it. Just mm. the notion of having like a an android Brigadier is quite a an exciting idea. Mm. In Instead itself. of the man who reminds me of uh, Stephen Fry's character in Blackadder Goes Forth. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But... <laughs> yeah, it does feel a bit lacklustre as a unit story. I hadn't realised that um, the Brigadier had been sort of planned to go in. I believe that's the case, yeah. Um, but it does certainly feel quite weird to have this other guy who's not the Brigadier as like a kind of central figure in the last story because mm. it really does feel like you kind of need the brig to be there mm. and obviously that's not something they could control for but I think if it had been a better script built around it it still might have felt a bit odd but it wouldn't have been quite it might it, it could have been I think it could have been better integrated into the rest of the story mm. Or I wouldn't have minded as much. Yeah, I mean, actually, like thinking about it now, I suppose in that sense, it's the um, it's weirdly the opposite of Modern Undead, which wasn't meant to have the Brigadierian and did. But I quite like Modern Undead, so in that sense, it's I suppose it's also an opposite. But there, they managed to salvage something at least. That's just because more Brigadier, more Brigadier, more good times. Well, exactly. Mm. Yeah, like I genuinely think that is a good. A, substantial part of it it's because yeah. they bullied him for wearing a kilt mm. he ran away to geneva in shame why did they do this he ran away to geneva and then retired yeah bring him in his knees back <laughs> the good news is it is time to move on to the brain of morbius Ooh. chop suey the galactic emperor Brain getting a little overheated, is it? Careful, not as strong as it was. My brain functions perfectly. Ah, it, Morbius. All that time in the tank, it's gone soft. Do you dare put it to the test? What test? We have all the apparatus here. I challenge you to a mind-bending contest. I am a Time Lord of the first rank. What are you? 
nothing, nothing. A mere nobody, but I don't think you're in the first rank anymore. Very well, Doctor. If that is how you want to die, I accept your challenge. There's a sporting gentleman. Jacob, would you like to start us off on this one? Yeah, um, I think this is a fairly effective episode, significantly more than the previous episode. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think Philip Maddock as Solon is excellent and at times hilarious, which is just kind of as usual, really, for Philip Maddock. It's got, you know, kind of clear themes running throughout it. There's like these themes of like progress versus stagnation, science and magic, mortality and immortality. I think they're somewhat problematic. You know, like at least the, there is something thematic there to kind of get hold of. I think the the kind of uh, the Morbius costumes pretty effective and quite unnerving actually. Mm. And the first time I saw it in a book, I thought it looked really silly. But then having seen it and understood the context, like actually, there's something about it that I find kind of yeah a bit disturbing really. One thing that I did think of when I was watching it is. I do feel like maybe Morbius comes into action too late in the story. Mm. You know, he's kind of built up as this great threat, which is something I I find really interesting. And I feel like revisiting him at some point could be productive. But, yeah, I feel like they build him up as a huge threat and then we don't see an awful lot of Morbius, really. I mean, he gets up at the end of episode three... But obviously he's not himself for half of episode four. Then they mm. stun him. And then obviously Solon then does another operation. And then he gets up and he is actually Morbius. But that's like, what, like halfway through episode four, I think? Um, Give or take, yeah. Maybe a little before halfway. Yeah, and then there's the mind-bending contest. And then obviously mm. he's killed by the sisterhood. And that's kind of it. And I, mm. I kind of felt for, for a villain that was kind of built up as being a huge threat who like even resurrecting would would you know be extremely dangerous that that kind of felt a bit lackluster i guess but yeah overall i think it's i think it's pretty effective i enjoyed it i think there are some occasions where it gets gratuitous and i don't normally complain about violence in the program but like, like the the shooting of Kondo did not need to be as graphic as it is. Like there was no purpose. To, like I don't mind violence in the program if it has a purpose. Mm. Um, like uh, the famous one is the deadly assassin gets mm. complaints for the drowning underwater. And personally, I don't really have an issue with that. But like, but like this just felt like and like the brain on the floor. I mean, it did get the bit where Solon's like, Morbius's brain on the floor, which made me laugh. But, like, it again, that just seemed kind of like trying to be kind of a bit disgusting for the sake of it, really. But, yeah, overall, I thought it was good. I enjoyed it. I think it's one of the better episodes in this season. So, yeah. Hmm. So, I, actually, I'll go next because I love the brain of Morbius. I think it's great it's one it's one of my favorite episodes of this era easily uh, and i think it's it's real it's clever and it's layered uh, in a way that quite a few of these don't seem to be and like i like i agree with you that it's got a thematic coherence that a lot of these don't have 
Uh, and I think a lot of that actually comes back to, I think, more than any other episode uh, or story. We're using those interchangeably. We might as well lean into it. This is the one that really kind of, if not interrogates, at least leans into the literary tradition of the Gothic. Mm. Most obviously in the form of Frankenstein. Because, like, it's fairly obvious that it's a take on Frankenstein. But what I think is really interesting about it is that it goes a lot further than a lot of other takes on Frankenstein. First of all, thematically, because it's got a lot of the same ideas animating it as Frankenstein in terms of concepts of mortality, the necessity of change, uh, what it means to create life, this kinds of thing. But also because it's got this central tension between the scientific and the alchemical. Mm. And, I mean, if you've read Frankenstein, alchemy is quite a big deal in the early chapters. You know, Frankenstein arrives at the university in... Where is it again? Oh, God. Somewhere in Switzerland. Ingolstadt? I think that's right, yeah. Um, And he's like, he's been reading the stuff that's in his father's library, Paracelsus and all kinds of, like, kind of medieval and renaissance alchemists and his kind of science tutors laugh at him. Uh, or like try to set him straight and there's a, there's kind of an implication that it's the union of those two things the synthesis if you like the, of the scientific and the alchemical that allow him to create the creature mm. so there's that but also one of the things that i really like is that there is a union in brain of morbius between the novel frankenstein and the films because at different times, for one thing, the um, the Morbius creature begins being inarticulate, unable to speak, and sort of bestial in the way that the uh, the like universal Frankenstein in particular tended to be. He's also at by the end is is scared of fire and is driven off a cliff by because he's scared of fire. But partway through episode four, he becomes more like the novel's Frankenstein... Uh, sorry, the novel's creature by being... Um, by kind of having the, the infusion of Morbius, if you will. the He becomes articulate. He becomes able to speak for himself. Morbius himself, for that matter, is kind of a combination of Frankenstein himself and the creature. So, in some ways, he's almost like... I, d- I don't think this is at all intentional, but I do like it. He's almost like the embodiment of the fact that people say Frankenstein when they're referring to the creature mm-hmm. and that kind of popular idea of what Frankenstein is so yeah I mean all of that I think is great just apart from anything I'm just a big fan of Frankenstein so to see it be kind of to see um, a show that like and that I also love pay homage to it and of course there's also the sense in which Frankenstein is the beginning of a sci-fi tradition that kind of feeds into Doctor Who, which is sci-fi in general, in fact. But there's also the notion of the Gothic. And I think, you know, we've used the word Gothic a lot, as it tends to get thrown around a lot in describing this era. But we haven't quite nailed down what it means, which, like, is kind of not unusual, even in academic discourse around the Gothic. There's kind of, there's a few different versions of what it means. The I think the most popular now is Fred Botting's notion of it as um, a writing of excess, uh, something that is kind of too much, mm-hmm. uh, too maybe too much to be comprehended or just kind of 
uh, transgressive. That's another word that comes up a lot in relation to the Gothic. There's kind of concepts, generic concepts of like the return of the past, which is something that we see a lot in these stories. Uh, an eruption of irrationality, usually some kind of role for religion and or superstition. Uh, all of these things, of course, are in Brain of Morbius quite front and centre. And there's also the fact that quite a lot of it is set in a gothic castle. It's very much playing with that kind of iconography. Now, in terms of um, some of the things that you were saying, Jacob, about like, I know what you mean about the idea uh, the fact that Morbius kind of gets built up and then mm. there's not that much to him. But I actually really like that because I think that's an expression of one of the things that I think really marks this story out, especially in context. And um, because I've been complaining a lot, especially in the first half of this, um, uh, of this season about the kind of the grimness of this era and um, how it, it gets quite kind of self-serious um, and this kind of thing. And Brain of Morbius, and actually, to slightly spoil things, Seeds of Doom as well, I think make for a very good counter to that. Because Brain of Morbius has this, as you were actually saying, has this great animating vein of, so to speak, of um, black humour mm. running throughout it. And I think one of the strongest ways in which that shows itself is the the fact that Morbius is built up as this terrible threat. Everyone's afraid of him. Uh, basically, everyone in the episode is either afraid of or worshipping him. And he's ended up not only as a brain in the in a jar, but actually, as you say, gets in episode three, gets swept off the table and ends up as a brain on the floor. There's something, like, really enjoyable about that kind of undermining. And it's kind of... It's the kind of thing that, while I think you can def- you could definitely take it too far, where kind of nothing is serious, and as I think we were saying last time, uh, the show does get into that sometimes, in, particularly in the Graham Williams era, uh, I think this kind of balances it quite right, in the sense that, like, Morbius is this terrible threat who can, like, more or less overpower the Doctor, but is also a brain on the floor. And that also, uh, I know I'm talking a lot, so I will wrap this up. But um, that also, I think there is some interplay with what you were saying about the violence as well, actually. Yeah, because I think this talking, is a sto- I thought that. Yeah, because this is a story with a real kind of concern with the carnal, mm. most obviously in like the the fleshy lump that is Morbius. There's like Condo's missing arm. There's Solon's kind of weird semi-like phrenological analysis of the Doctor's head and whether it's going to be suitable. And as what well, I think that plays into the kinds of ideas, the kind of the Frankensteinian ideas of matter and the animation of matter, as well as obviously in most cases being a kind of source of black humour. There's also a kind of like a, a Cartesian thing of like the... Uh, how much the body influences thought that's kind of running through especially with regard to morbius himself so yeah i'm i'm gonna stop there but as i think you've probably worked out i really like this story and i think it's it's playing with a lot of ideas and it's doing so intelligently it's doing so with reference to uh, a literary tradition specifically i guess a kind of gothic romantic literary tradition 
uh, in Frankenstein, but also kind of in a wider sense. And um, yeah, I'm a big fan. I also like this story. I think that this was where the gothic mode of the of this series started to really work for me Hmm. and it's because it took the i think it's because to bring in another term associated with excess that is very often very difficult to define it's a more like campy kind of gothic Mm, yeah, yeah yeah um where it's kind of earnest in the attempt of what it's doing but the end product is over the top in a way that is kind of funny as well as being horrifying genuinely horrifying in places and for me that made it kind of a treat to watch um there was still some i also still had some like issues with some of the violence um for me the bit that stood out was condo like pulling sarah jane's hair yeah yeah. um Mm. There were times where I think it oversteps, but there was also great bits like um, the horrible sewn-together body that Sarah Jane mm. sees and has a fairly neutral reaction to, actually. <laughs> um, that's quite disgusting, but um, works really well. I was worried at the beginning because the dial- some of the dialogue of the sisters sisterhood seemed a bit Peladon-esque, and so I was worried about where the tone was going, but mm. actually... Uh, because most of the stuff that they say after that is just sacred flame or whatever, <laughs> yeah. it kind of is fine. They're casting their sacred flame cantrip a lot. Yeah, they're reminding the cleric and the party to use sacred flame. But what I thought was interesting in how this relates to the novel Frankenstein, I was worried that we were going to uh, cross, <laughs> cross hairs in our interpretations and then I'd have nothing to say. But actually, what I found interesting was how this, I think fairly uniquely in things riffing on Frankenstein really takes on the modern Prometheus element of the title Mm. because the Time Lords have stolen the flame from the sisterhood Mm. making them a kind of original Prometheus in the in the story stealing stealing some kind of life from these people and then the second Prometheus the modern Prometheus is kind of Morbius and also Solon, yeah, in their endeavor to put Morbius's consciousness into this creature that they've created, I thought the Time Lord stuff was quite interesting because it implies that they might depend on the elixir from the Flame of Life. Which, if I'd been watching this for the first time in a pre-timeless children world, I would have been thinking like, is that where they got their regeneration powers from? Mm. But. For the time being, this is retconned um, until it may be retconned again in the future, maybe. Mm. So I guess that's not it. But I think it's interesting. It's nice to... It's always nice to have a story involving the Time Lords, by which I mean a story where the Time Lords are being shit. <laughs> um, mm. So that I like that element of it as well, this kind of history. And another kind of way that this has a sort of gothic tone... I don't think we've really seen in all the others the like gothic castle stuff is the fact that there's a lot of kind of Babylonian decor slash mm. costuming mm. like the sisters costumes are quite Babylonian style and there's like the kind of um, winged 
creatures um, in Solon's house. I can't remember what they're called. They're not sphinxes or griff. Maybe they are griffins, but they're like lion creatures with wings and a head of a human. They're kind of Babylonian architecture. So there's a kind of they've got hints of an ancient civilization's ruins in which mm. they are living. Mm. So that's part of like how the time lords factor in as well. I think there's this very real sense of sort of decay and obviously bodily decay hmm. but um a sort of decline that has occurred um at least in prestige if not in like kind of moral standing and so i think i think this is i think this is the this is the story that i think does gothic best while also doing it less the least seriously hmm. It captures the true spirit of the gothic, which is to be unintentionally hilarious whilst meaning to be serious. The helm falling upon Conrad in the castle of Otranto, for example. <laughs> well, I don't think it's unintentionally hilarious Well, uh, in this instance. Yeah. Um, the, the, I think that humour is an important part of any successful execution of gothic. Mm. Um I mean, I suppose Frankenstein the novel isn't that funny, but Frankenstein the novel is doing something slightly different in terms of being a science fiction text as well. Yeah, yeah, and actually, that's a good point, because I hadn't thought of this, but I guess in that sense, this is also kind of, by virtue of what it is, it's kind of marrying Frankenstein, which, by gothic standards, is a fairly kind of highbrow arty novel if you like mm-hmm. with the kind of the more popular tradition the of... bride of frankenstein if you will <laughs> well yeah actually married um... together at last <laughs> but yeah married with the kind of the more uh 18th century in particular popular uh tradition of the gothic by virtue of what it is which is like saturday tea time entertainment yeah and so there's again i guess there's a there's an awareness of different kinds of traditions coming uh coming together uh which i think is really impressive watching this after android invasion my god there's so much more energy and life in the dialogue in particular like having suffered through four turgid episodes of like quite dreary techno about some techno babbly stuff but mostly just very functional dialogue Every interaction between Solon and Kondo is just like a breath of fresh air. Should we talk about the lads, the boys, the black and white images that are the canon pre-Hartnell oh, time yeah. lords? I guess we should. Yeah, the um, <laughs> the the crew <laughs> members who were just like and staff who were quickly taking pictures of. I mean, like Robert Holmes yeah. is in there. He uh, is, Philip yeah. Hinchcliffe I think is in there. John Nathan I think Turner's he is. on it. <laughs> like, um, yeah, I can't remember who they all are, but yeah, they're all like Christopher kind of Barry, production. Uh, oh yeah, that's right. In yeah. a way, we were all there. No, but I, I have to say, because I, as I've kind of uh, alluded to previously, I am unique in the group as having only seen this after those doctors had already become canons. So yeah. I was kind of wait, like, already even. Basically, I was watching it post Timeless Children for the first time. Yeah. And I can, I think I can fairly safely say that, like, if I hadn't already known that this was this huge kind of nexus of fan speculation and intrigue and whatnot, I would probably not have given a second thought to these black mm. and white images. I mean, I am kind of unusually 
casual in my regard to some of these debates because I also, when I first found out that there was the thing of people were like, oh, the Doctor only has 13 regenerations after that, something, the show's gonna end. And I was like, someone, someone was, t- some, imagine somebody telling me this in like 2007 or something. Mm. And I was like, yeah, I, I don't really care. I don't think they're gonna do that. So I think we're good. And I genuinely would not have minded if they had never addressed that and just kept mm. having more Doctors. Because I'd kind of already assumed that there might have been other Doctors before the Mm. first Doctor. Mm. But I just... I think if things are done in in a way that is interesting, then I don't really mind. But I'm not one for, like... I don't need there to be a whole episode explaining what the Doctor meant when he said that he was half human on his mother's side, for example... Well, that's good, because there isn't one. Yeah, well, if something weird happens, like, that seems to break canon, I'm happy to ignore it. I don't care. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the lads. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I I agree with you, actually. I have never cared about the Morbius Doctors at all. You know, the, the, the show's canon is inherently contradictory in a lot of ways. I mean, I... At this point, the, like, regeneration limit doesn't even exist. It only exists as a reason for the Master to be all crispy in The Deadly Assassin. (laughs) Um, And after that, I don't think it's mentioned at all in the classic series, except maybe in Keeper of Traken, Mm. uh, when Crispy Master comes back. And, Mm. yeah, it's... Delicious. It's one of those things that it's just... It's... It's kind of organized fandom that exaggerates the the significance of these things, I suppose. Mm. And like, I mean, I'm I'm not knocking organized fandom because organized fandom is why this podcast exists to a greater or lesser extent, and uh, why we're like spending our evening talking about this show. But I am, in a big way, not a fan of sort of continuity fetishism in Doctor Who, as opposed to bringing back old concepts in an interesting way, which is a discussion that might come up in our next episode, actually. That's one of my core problems with Timeless Children. This isn't... I'm not going to launch into my thoughts on Timeless Children at this point, for all kinds of reasons, but like, yeah, it strikes me as like, it's just not something I ever cared about. Mm -hmm. And having it resolved made no difference whatsoever to how I viewed this episode, actually. Yeah. I really liked this e- this story, though. Yeah. It just feels weird that, they, that, that what's kind of happened is taking a story about how the Time Lords are dicks and turning it into a story about oh, the Time Lords, they were actually dicks all along. And I'm like, yeah, I guess we knew that. We, but we'll leave this as sizzle for when we eventually talk about the time yeah, children yeah, so yeah. that we can we can be those extra crispy masters by the time we get there. <laughs> like Delicious. I'm not I've never like I agree, look, I've never been particularly fussed by the inclusion because I just kinda think like well, it's just something they did so they could have the sequence going for long enough. And also, mm. is it Morbius? You know, I mean I think it's mm. probably not. I think it's probably supposed to be the doctor, but like I wouldn't say it's clear cut, but like the only thing I would say that I like about it is I I think it is good to suggest that the, 
the Doctor's history goes further back than you know what we see is the first Doctor. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I think it does get you around that issue that the program had, particularly in the eighties, that someone like Andrew Cartmel, uh, uh, you know, kind of diagnosed, which was the program completely lost all its mystery and we knew everything mm. about the character. You know, and I and I think that is a good thing, and it, and it allows you to to reinvent things and to do different things with the program. In the case of the Time as Children, which again I'm not going to really go into here, but like all I will say is like it's just a mess, and they didn't need to do it. <laughs> it's just mm. awful. Yeah, and I, I think you're right. People make too much of that little sequence. But yeah. Another possibility that I had thought of, as well as the fact that they might be Morbius's previous regenerations, was part of me was like, is it supposed to imply that the Doctor's sort of tricking Morbius and mm. gaming the system by showing mm. him some, at least some regenerations that may not be his actual ones? But yeah, I do actually kind of like the idea of implying regenerations before the first doctor just mm. because it, it makes a lot of things make more sense i think yeah including the existence of susan yeah um it's it was kind of strange watching it with that context in mind because of how much of a sort of not a non-event but there's a lot going on in that last episode and uh mm. that wouldn't be the standout thing for me otherwise i don't think <laughs> Yeah, it's just it's just one of those things people have fixated on over the years, I think. Um, By contrast, I think it's nice that they brought the sisterhood back in yes. the new series. Mm, mm, yeah, I, um, yeah I, I really like what's done with them in Night of the Doctor. I didn't realise that they were from this specific story, and I recognised them when we were watching mm. it, and it was kind of an exciting little oh, I know those people, which I thought was the way that I would ideally like continuity between the classic and new mm. series to work, where mm. it didn't feel like too much. I didn't get confused watching Night of the Doctor. Mm. But then when I realised where they were from and the context through discovering this story, it was cool and neat. Mm. I guess the other thing would be that bringing them back kind of it adds something to them. It adds it both it adds something to them as they are in Brain of Morbius because um it kind of adds something to your understanding of what their elixir does. Mm. But also, yeah, in Night of the Doctor, if you know the doc about the doctor's previous interactions with them, that's something in itself, but also if you if you know the kind of the al the very overt alchemical resonances that are going on in this story, then that can that informs the kind of rebirth that happens in Night of the Doctor. I also approve of the fact that the sisters are an all female society where the women actually do all the jobs, unlike <laughs> what we saw in, say, Planet of the Spiders, where they just had a bunch of like lads to do all of their work for yeah. them. Yeah. It was just kind of nice. They do guard duty. They carry people around and stuff. We love to see it. There's lots of women. That's... Mm, mm. It was exciting in this series. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. This this does really tip the balance in terms of women in this series. Mm. The Sisterhood alone. I guess the other thing about the Sisterhood actually is their... 
and this goes back to the gothic thing a bit they're very catholic in the sense that they their ritual around the the elixir is very kind of very eucharistic i suppose mm. there, there's not a sense of transformation of like transubstantiation going on but you know it is unlike the the kind of the more i guess protestant understanding of the eucharist as symbolic there is a sense of like this is the actual thing which again the reason it ties back to the gothic tradition is that catholics are are scary in the gothic tradition <laughs> traditionally well it's like those great however many hundred years of like english literature where all the discourse around catholics was aren't the catholics dangerous aren't the catholics sexy mm-hmm. and uh me reading this with like catholic upbringing i'm like oh thank you <laughs> thank you for your kind words i feel i feel cool <laughs> This plant laboratory is unique, Doctor. It makes the Botanical Institute look like a potting shed. Oh, in the end, I do so hate guided tours. Here we treat our green friends as patients. If they're puny, we build them up. If they're sick, we give them succor. I've heard of flower power, but that is ridiculous. You've heard of the theory that uh, irregular light patterns can affect the senses of so-called mindless things. Oh, yes, like Scorby here. Enjoy yourself while you can, Doctor. Where's Keeler? He's engaged in important and isolated research. On the pod. What else? So, the time has come to move on to our final episode of the season, Seeds of Doom. Besson, why don't you take us away? So, I don't even know how to describe how much I love this story in a sensible and considered way because on every conceivable level I enjoy it. I like the plant content. I love Harrison Chase. What an icon. Noise DJing in his leather gloves. <laughs> God, I wish that were me. The I think that the splitting of the two kind of two parter and then four parter works really well. I love the oh my gosh, what's the painter called? Amelia Ducart. Amelia Ducart. I love her. I love the giant plant, the 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 the, the crinoid. I love that boy. I love the slightly naff like body makeup that they have for the people in the transitional stage of becoming a plant. Basically. I think that on some level I kind of want to become a plant in a similar way to I feel like Harrison Chase probably does. And so this episode really spoke to me on some deep level that I can't adequately explain. And it's really good. And that's what I have to say about that. (laughs) Excellent. And Jacob, what's um... your follow-up? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to say this now because it's going to be fairly obvious anyway, but I think this is the best episode of the season for me. Like, the crinoids, I think, are very effective. And I I think it, it's weird because, yeah, it look, like you say, it looks kind of naff, the, the, the transition, but I also think it kind of looks effective for that reason as well. And I do find it unnerving, even now. Mm. Like, I think Baker's performance is, like, great. Um, I think it's one of his best performances in this series. Um, I think he does that thing again that he 
he did somewhat in Pyramids of Mars of kind of heightening the the level of threat, you know, through through his behaviour. You know, at times he kind of appears sort of snappy, you know, like he's losing control of the situation, but then he also undercuts that with these kind of moments where he'll do something that's like very alien because it's, you know, kind of very uh, inappropriate to the context, which is kind of what we were saying in the previous episode as well. I think all the supporting characters are really well-rounded. Um, mm. So obviously you have like Emilia Duca, who's like great and is like a really strong character. Scorby, um, who actually goes through some kind of character development, which is unusual in the in the classic series, I think. Also, the way Tom Baker says Scorby is the best thing. Scorby! Scorby! <laughs> um, I knew we wouldn't get through this story without someone doing that. <laughs> um, like, all of that is great. Um, structurally, like you were saying, Bethan, it's very clever because it's, it's kind of split into that two-parter and four-parter. So, unlike most six-part stories, it doesn't feel like it's dragging on forever mm. like there's real momentum the whole way through the crinoid itself like fully transformed and like in the transitional stage when it's clearly an axon spray painted green uh, <laughs> but it's still effective um i i think it, it's it's not so good when it when it's kind of full height and there's that moment where it runs towards the camera but, <laughs> but see i disagree i loved it at every stage like it was my I, own like i think i think the initial transitional stage and the bit where it's the axon spray painted green and the model of it on the on the house that mm. all works great and like it is on a bbc budget so kind of what are you gonna do mm. you know yeah like i don't really have anything bad to say about it at all it's great so, I think this is great. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> um, this was actually one of the first classic series stories I bought on DVD. Um, just because I was so taken with it from watching it uh, on, on uh, Doctor Who on Twitch, actually. And I think a lot of that is the kind of things we've said about how the, the structure works better than almost any other six. Maybe any other six-parter, actually, honestly. Um, because you've got that division. It's an interesting division, actually, because it's almost like the first two stories... The first two stories... I knew this would happen. The first two episodes are almost like, in themselves, a kind of Triton-style base under siege story. Mm. And then you transition to the the four-parter, if you like, is more like a kind of Pertwee-style Yeti in the Lou story, uh, with its kind of English country setting. And both work really well, even in and of themselves. But there is also a clear progression through this. It is still a single coherent story. Now, one of the reasons why I think it works so well is I think the tone is very, very interesting in, in regard to the kinds of things that we've been talking about this uh, this season. About a kind of, you know, uh, the, the kind of things I've been saying about it's kind of a grimness and stuff like that. Mm. Because I think this story starts out kind of in that vein and uh, the first two episodes are quite bleak actually the all of the the lads on the the base are just kind of doomed and uh, which is kind of the case in a base under siege story usually anyway but the, and there's a there's a kind of you know you've got dunbar uh kind of 
selling out his plant-based principles to Harrison Chase. There's a kind of there's a there's a cynicism to it. But over the course of the story, I think that grimness and that cynicism kind of ebb away a bit and are replaced more by the kind of thing we were talking about in the last story, actually, a kind of campness, which is obviously exemplified in two figures, which are Amelia Ducat, who is the kind of wonderful Miss Marple-esque kind of old lady who gets underestimated by everyone around her. She's got a touch of Lady Bracknell about her as well. She actually quotes Lady Bracknell at one point, or paraphrases her, who is just wonderful, obviously. And, of course, Harrison Chase himself, who is probably the closest Doctor Who ever comes to a true, especially a 70s-style Bond villain. Mm. With his, like, everything about him is so ludicrously overwrought that it becomes one his noise music his like constant leather gloves the fact that he wants to be a plant on yeah. some level i don't know if that was ever like text but i felt that he wanted yeah. to be a plant mm. when he's sort of communing with them and he's the only human that's going to be working with them and stuff Mm-mm. i felt like that was on the agenda somewhere. Mm, mm. It's kind of a shame, really, because like the actor, I think his name is Tony Beckley. I should probably check this, but mm. I think that the actor who plays her, who played him, unfortunately, like died quite relatively young. Mm. And I feel like if he hadn't, he could have gone on to do like a Bond villain or Surely, something. Surely, yeah. And I would have been absolutely here for a hundred percent of that. <laughs> Especially if there was plants involved. Mm, mm. Um, but I think that it is a spectacular performance and I adore it. And I'm glad that we that such a moment was committed to television <laughs> and into our hearts. Well, I mean, I think obviously he's there throughout the story, but I think that sense of camp and sense of almost fun kind of becomes more prevalent as it goes on. But also, I think, on a wider level, I actually think, to some extent, this story is almost a repudiation of the kind of the grimness and the cynicism. And I think part of how it does that is by taking it to its logical extreme in a sort of like, a sort of vengeance on Varos, esh, esh, I tried to say both ish and esque at the same time, a vengeance on Varos-esque way. Where it's kind of, or the, you could argue the two doctors does this as well. Where it's kind of, it's almost a bit too much with the the grinder and the all that kind of stuff. But uh, and while I think that is arguably there, I think the the real kind of repudiation of cynicism comes in the form of the character development for Scorby that you were talking about, mm-hmm. because to begin with. Scorby is like in control of the situation. He arrives on the Antarctic base and he's like, he's got everyone's measure, seems to be right about everything, and just his kind of general nastiness seems to be pervading the whole story. But as the story goes on, and especially in the last couple of episodes, more and more he becomes almost subservient. He starts doing what the Doctor is telling him to do. And like... His attitudes and his opinions are heavily suggested to just be wrong at every turn when it comes to fighting the Grinoid because he's made the misfortune of stumbling into a Doctor Who story. 
And his kind of, like, all of his posturing and his apparent, like, macho self-reliance is very heavily undercut. It's kind of exposed as just a kind of naked selfishness. There's a, a great scene, I think it's in the last episode, where Sarah says, this is all just a game to you, isn't it? And you you get this, there's, there's just something of him suddenly gets stripped away and you see that he is this kind of venal, petty individual. And of course that machismo ultimately gets him killed and the selfishness gets him killed because he runs away rather than, like, help out and gets killed by plants. What a way to go. Mm, mm, mm. Just hypothetically. <laughs> and I mean, similarly, well, similarly in some sense, even Harrison Chase kind of dooms himself. It's the the classic thing of, like, he kind of continues to fight and thereby dooms himself. And the Doctor actually laments not being able to save him, which I have written down is far more convincing than the end of Warriors of the Deep, uh, for instance. Yeah, I think that's that's most of what I have to say. I I think it's like it's it's weird because um, Elizabeth Sandifer has a real go at this story. She she thinks it is really grim. It is kind of that it is even more than Deadly Assassin. It is the kind of Mary Whitehouse provoking violence. Mm. The kind of whatever she called it, tea time brutality for tots. That's Mary Whitehouse, not Elizabeth Sandifer. But like, I completely disagree, uh, and I think it's much, much cleverer than that. Mm. I think um, it is enacting this kind of—I wouldn't call it a dialectic. I think it's actually a conflict between the that kind of gritty, cynical story and a much more kind of jovial, fun story over the course of the six episodes and the fun story massively wins out because apart from anything else this is a story with a massive plant monster being attacked by jet planes so that alone tells you the kind of story that this is I think just because he's different (laughs) (laughs) I I will say like for all that you were talking about how Scorby kind of comes off quite cool and macho at the beginning it did occur to me that him and Keela go into the Arctic base with real names, no plan, and just kind of see what happens, which is, like, reckless. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's kind of what people do in this kind of story, though. Mm. And, like, they are planning to kill everyone. So. Oh, yeah, that's true. Um, oh, I mean, the real thing that undermines his, like, his gritty mercenary thing is the fact that he is Boise from Only Fools and Horses. Um, but obviously he wasn't at the time and that could hardly have been predicted that he would be in a massively successful sitcom 10 years later. I will say I have one I have one critique of of Harrison Chase as a as a person one flaw that I have noticed which is that when he's first introduced and he's talking about bonsai trees and how they're so brutal against plants and stuff, I felt like it did come off a bit sort of like intolerant of other cultures, hmm. other plant cultures. To be fair, he is intolerant of like human culture. Yeah. But anyway, that's my critique of him. Other than that, no notes. I think he's doing amazing hmm. and... um it's a sad end, but like it's it's how he would have wanted to go, honestly. Mm. Well, maybe plants. not how he would have wanted to go, how he would have wanted to end up. Yeah, yeah. So, for me, perfect arc. 
I just wanted to say one more thing, mm-hmm. which is that the bit where they have to take out all the plant parts from the conservatory <laughs> because they might be secretly spying on them <laughs> was one of my top moments in all of television. <laughs> it came close... Well, no, it didn't quite come close to the heights of the chase sequence in um, <laughs> Planet, of the, Planet of the Spiders, but that's the kind of content that gets close. <laughs> okay, well, uh, since we have are finished kneeling at the altar of Harrison Chase for the moment. The Green Cathedral. Mm. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, shall we move on to the rankings? Yes. Mm. And as tradition dictates, I'll go first. So, in last place, number six, you'll be astonished to hear it is the Android Invasion. Uh, a story with next to no redeeming features, which is just so dull that... Both in our discussion of it and, like, talking about it uh, between ourselves, we've struggled to remember very much about it. Uh, and, like, almost been surprised to remember that certain plot elements are in there. So, yeah. number Four and five I struggled with because I think, depending on the day, I could very easily arrange these two in a different order. But I think for the mood I am in at the moment, number five will be Pyramids of Mars. Because I don't think I can put it higher than that, given how much of a go I had at it uh, in the, the last episode. Unlike Android Invasion, it has it has definite redeeming features. Um, it's got some some great performances, some some cool atmosphere. But it is heavily undermined by being very racist. Uh, and to my mind, just so horribly cynical and nihilistic that it actively irritates me to watch it. Number four is um, Planet of Evil, which uh, I definitely got talked up on a bit, I think, um, by Jacob's theory of it, which, like, I I mean, I already thought there were interesting aspects of it, but I, I probably favour it a little more now than I did. I do still think it's it's got that unremitting grimness to it that I, as I've suggested many times, react quite badly to. Um, and I think it gets quite dull in places. It does feature Anti-Man, which is <laughs> good news in itself. I've just been editing the first episode, so I've been hearing all about Anti-Man. It's been a great time. And number three, I'm going to put Terror of the Zygons, which uh, I like. Uh, I as, as I suggested, I kind of have some problems with the the plotting and I think in particular now that we have other Zygon stories some of its shortcomings are a bit more evident but it's it is one of those cases where it's the first to do something so it's hard to blame it's it would be like blaming the Daleks for not being like remembrance of the Daleks in some ways but uh, I still think it's a it's a solid story it's uh, one of the better stories of this era for sure and it's got some some good stuff going on number two for me is the Seeds of Doom, which I really, really enjoy. Uh, I, it's a, it's one of those stories I could watch many times over. Uh, I think it's it's staging this kind of interesting conflict between the, the, the Grimm and the camp, if you like, and it's stacking its hand in favour of the camp, which I, I'm always going to be a fan of. And at number one is Brain of Morbius, which I really really love and uh, i think it's it's a really clever story it's it's work it's kind of it's in touch with a lot of interesting aspects of literary tradition that it's drawing on cultural tradition more generally i suppose uh, and it's kind of it's 
one of the most intelligent takes on Frankenstein that I've ever seen in terms of the kind of drawing on its its influences and its context and its reception, in fact. Uh, and it gets bonus points for being a take on Frankenstein that has nothing to do with how the, the novel came about. Which is not actually a dig at Haunting of Villa Diodati, but can be construed as one if you like. Bethan. Okay, so... Obviously, at the bottom, I've got Android Invasion. It's bad. Some interesting ideas aside, it doesn't really come together. So then, next in line, this is going to start looking a bit familiar at first because I've got Pyramids of Mars as well. I think mostly for me, just because of how much of a letdown... Apart from... Well, so... So there's the racism. That's one reason why it's ranked so low. But there's also the fact that the payoff is so profoundly unsatisfying mm, after mm, them having true. taken such pains to establish the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-powerfulness of Sutek. So that's where that's why that's in fifth place. Then in fourth place, I have Planet of Evil. Yeah, again, some some interesting ideas, but it's not one that I'd be in a hurry to rewatch. Unlike the top three that I have and I'm beginning to wonder if I mightn't have put the two and three in the wrong order just based on some of the discussion but I'm gonna go with what I have written down and trust my gut instincts and be blind to other possibilities as is the correct way to do the discourse (laughs) so in third place I have Brain of Morbius it's campy it's fun but there's some there's, there's some horror in there as well and I think it's just like you Oh my gosh! Thank you. I th- I think it's 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 a it's a really interesting take on Frankenstein and also a story that engages with some of the lore surrounding the Time Lords in a way that is compelling and feels interesting and exciting. Uh, number two, I have Terror of the Zygons, which is probably just this high because I like Zygons. Also, like. I wanted to support the Brigadier in his bold fashion statements, not like those that would tear him down. Mm. And then in first place, of course, the six parts that stole our hearts. <laughs> it's the Seeds of Doom. God tier. <laughs> I cannot be objective at all about this masterpiece. I like how you plop down your pen as if you were dropping the mic. In my heart, I was. And <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, Jacob. Well, in an unusual turn of events, number six, we have the android invasion. It's... I was half convinced you were going to say, at number six, the seeds of doom. <laughs> <laughs> Just immediately start getting hate mail, probably. (laughs) (laughs) From Bethan. I would have been throwing tendrils. (laughs) Um, Yeah, like, it's it's dull, um, as we've all said. It's got potential, but it just, it just doesn't, it it doesn't develop it. It, it, Yeah, it's just very boring. Uh, Number five, I have Pyramids of Mars, um, which I'm sure there'll be plenty of fans who'll be shaking their fists at. Yeah, um, I was kind of thinking that when I put it there. <laughs> but, um, 
yeah, like there is stuff in there that I like. Tom Baker and this lady are very good as usual. Gabriel Wolf is excellent um, mm. as the mm. voice of Sutek. But yeah, as you were saying, it all falls apart in the final episode, which is just a kind of dull rehash of Death to the Daleks. And it is racist, so not that great, really, despite what its reputation suggests. Four and three, I have been having difficulty in deciding between. I think uh, it would, yeah, again, like it would depend on, you know, kind of how I feel on the day, really. But Mm. for now, I've put number four, Terror of the Zygons. I know. Which, you know, there's lots of stuff that I like in this story. Like, I really like the design of the Zygons. Um, I think that's a lot of fun. Like, I think, as I was saying, kind of, I think there is this theme about alienation running throughout it, which is interesting, if a little problematic as well, as we were saying uh, in the last episode. I think it doesn't fully exploit the potential of that kind of doppelganger storyline, though. And, yeah, as as you said, it's kind of... There will there will be better appearances of the Zygons later on. Number three, and again, this is virtually interchangeable, I think, with four, really, for me, um, is Planet of Evil. It's not perfect. There are times when it is dull. There's some awful, awful acting in it. It is uneven, you know, kind of between the kind of really fantastic jungle set and then the kind of very bland spaceship. Mm. But I think conceptually and thematically it is so interesting uh, and it's a very intelligent story personally I'd, i i don't mind the bleakness in that one i you know i think i think it is doing something productive um mm. i mean i don't mind seriousness in doctor who in general provided it's mm. like actually you know actually there for a reason um mm. rather than just being mm. gratuitous yeah so I think overall it's a very interesting story, although it is flawed. And number two, I have Brain of Morbius. I have to say a lot of the stuff that you were saying, Kieran, uh, and you were saying, Bethan, is like, yeah, I, th- I thought was I thought was interesting, and I, yeah, like I, I kind of can't believe that I hadn't noticed some of that stuff. But um, I, th- I think you're right. I think it's a very intelligent story. I think it's very effective. I really like the black humour in it. I love Philip Maddock. Like, he's just great. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, And then, number one, I have, surprisingly, uh, Seeds of Doom. (laughs) 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 Which, yeah, yeah, it's, it's just fantastic. Really well structured, pulls off the feet of being a six-parter that is actually enjoyable all the way through. All the characters are really well-drawn. You know, some of them even change over the story, which is unbelievable. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's it's great. Um, And as you were saying, Harrison Chase is like a great villain um, Mm. as well. So, yeah, that's that's me. So, in that, what do we think of, like this season in general then like how how does it sort of stack up to other ones that we've looked at because we're at the point now where we can i think we can really start comparing Mm. i mean i overall had a great time 
uh, the average being thrown slightly <laughs> mm. by, you know what? But I th- I was surprised when you I think I might have mentioned this in the previous episode, but mm. I was surprised to learn that this series had such a favorable rep- uh, reputation after having watched the first couple of stories. Because mm. I think I was just asking Kieran how what people felt about it and stuff and was surprised to learn how positively it's received it's still good overall but i feel like it's kind of worthwhile having a look back and and maybe reevaluating some individual stories just to just to kind of keep things keep keep the kind of conversations we have about stuff fresh apart mm, from anything yeah. like if this is someone's favorite series or one of their favorites then you know, I can understand, but also there's no point in having that be kind of like the last word on it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess for me, I think this this season, more so than the one before it, certainly, and probably even more than the one after it, is kind of like, it really sort of sums up the era in that I think it's got the best and worst of it. Uh, actually, maybe season 14 might have a beaten on that regard but because you've got um something like brain of morbius or like seeds of doom which are really clever and playful stories with like a lot with a lot to say that are like kind of throwing ideas around and managing to bring their ideas to the screen in for mid-70s doctor who very impressive kind of production values which kind of talked about here and there but like uh, I mean that's one of the things about this era that they do consistently look quite good actually Mm. uh, with some notable exceptions but it's also got like it's got the autopilot of android invasion and it's got the like the racism and the the unexamined racism I guess in particular of um, Pyramids of Mars because it's got that thing where it's sort of it's drawing on these uh, literary and cinematic traditions. But in a lot of cases, it's not really interrogating them at all. And so you get that kind of uh, sort of mummy's tomb style story. And and tries to bring with it the kind of the horror trappings of that into a sci-fi setting. But unfortunately, it also brings with it the inherent racism and the kind of the imperial standpoint. So like that obviously drags us down a lot in in my esteem but yeah i mean i don't want to use the word grimness any more than i already have but it's there and it's like it's definitely to some degree a personal a matter of taste because like it's just not something i'm generally a huge fan of in doctor who which again like you were saying jacob is not to say there aren't like serious stories that i really love i mean Ghostlight is not big on laughs but is like a masterpiece mm. But Ghostlight is also actually a pretty revealing example because Ghostlight is a story about the past and about like layers of the past and about how we examine history and these kinds of things, among many other things. And it does so in some ways by interrogating the program's own past and by interrogating an imperial past and all of this kind of stuff. It's kind of, it's, it's got all of these ideas, but it's like, examining them through a very critical lens Mm -hmm. which is something that i think this era consistently not always but fairly regularly fails to do yeah yeah i think 
yeah, I'd say it's fairly it's a fairly mixed uh, season, as you were saying. Mm. I mean, to to be fair, I do think Doctor Who in general its seasons do tend to be very mixed. But I yeah. think, yeah. as you were saying, this is mixed for very specific reasons. It's mixed because it's taking a particular aesthetic and genre that can be used productively and in interesting ways and can be interrogated but often is not and I think I guess in relation to other seasons it's kind of I can see the importance of it for the program you know this this is something that will come back this is a style that will come will, will re reemerge again and again mm-hmm. um, and it will do it to uh, you know lesser or greater extents and, and more or less successfully yeah it's it's kind of it's had a good influence and an unfortunate influence on the one hand Doctor Who lends itself to the gothic very well it's it means that as you were saying this series does look really good because the BBC can do period drama they're not so good at doing like you know an alien world mm. on the other hand there is always that that kind of racism inherent within within it and its relation to imperialism and unfortunately because this season and the seasons around it are so popular that often that doesn't get interrogated and it's just mm. you know oh isn't this great it's classic but mm. you know there are serious issues with it i do i do definitely prefer this to say pertwee's last season uh, which we looked yeah, at. I, I think i think well. that's a very mm. weak season but I, I also certainly wouldn't say this is one of the best that we've we've been through so far. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. I think I think there are better, definitely, even even just in what we've already looked at. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, like the other classic series that we've done is season seven, which, to be fair, is an unusually consistent yeah. Yeah. series for for the classic series, and this definitely kind of isn't a patch on that in that regard. But yeah, I think. What you're saying about the influence this era has had, I think, I think there's a there's an echo of that, a quite an interesting echo of that in a story that we will be looking at in a few episodes' time. So don't get too excited for it yet, because I was actually saying this earlier, which why like before recording, which why it's in my mind. But in the Impossible Planet, the Satan yeah. Pit, Gabriel Wolf plays the voice of the the Beast. So there's a there's a very clear kind of nod there and of course that is sort of drawing on elements of gothic horror as well but is doing so i think productively that's certainly down pyramids of mars so even for all that the the aesthetic going on here i think has its issues it certainly will kind of pay far more dividends i think you can see its influence in a lot of i mean i think you can see its influence in ghost life for all that i was unfavorably yeah. making that comparison uh, it's certainly there in basically everything mark gatus has ever written for good and ill uh, <laughs> and like it's like this is probably with the possible exception of i guess um the mccoy years this is probably the most influential um, mm. era of the show in terms of like writers on the new for the new series, yeah. so I think in that regard it's kind of it's an important one, like you were saying, Beth. And it's important that we keep returning to it and mm. keep kind of reevaluating it, I guess. Mm. 
So, I think that about wraps us up, right? Mm. Yes, I think so. Good. So, you can join us next time where we will be returning to the new series with an extended look. I say extended purely because I feel like we're going to have a lot to say about this one. Mm-hmm. With an extended look at Series 9, the middle Capaldi season, which mm. I have been looking forward to for a long time. So I'm very excited to get into that. Uh, but until then, I have been Kieran. I've been Bethan. I've been Jacob. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>